here we go, folks. On uh, three, two, one, we are speaking with the one and only uh, Jason Beeler of, of course, Saigon Kick, a great band back in the day. What was that? Uh, what was that great song uh, from uh, from uh, Love Is on the Way? There you go. That's the one. That is the one that you wrote. That's the one why I'm calling you from a very nice house. Yes. So before we get over to all the, the good stuff, or all the old stuff, I should say, not the good stuff. This is all the good stuff. Uh, Jason Beeler and the Baron Von Bilski Orchestra Songs for the Apocalypse coming out uh, J- January 22nd, 2021. It includes, of course, uh, Clint Lowry, Ricky Sanders, Jeff Scott Soto, Bumblefoot, Pat Badger, Butch Walker, Dave Ellison, David, Devin Townsend, a little Canadian content for you, and many, many more. Uh, as we say in Montreal, bonjour, Jason. How are you? Man, I, I couldn't be doing it. I mean, obviously, other than the pandemic and the horror that that has wreaked upon the world, on a personal level, I mean, I'm doing fantastic. So I'm really lucky. You're real lucky. So so talk to me quickly about the album in, in the sense that you do have some special guests, but other than their little special moments on the album, this is all you. Everything is you, right? Yeah, I mean, I wrote all this stuff. To, I mean, as I was getting ready to do the record in March, I, I wanted to kind of, my goal was to call all my buddies up. And I assumed that like, just due to the nature of life or their other recording commitments or things that they were going to do that, you know, most would say couldn't do it right now. And I'd get three or four of them. Um, I was so thrilled. I mean, everybody said yes. I mean, to the point where there's even more people I was going to try and do something with, you know, I was talking to, uh, you know, Corey Taylor about doing some stuff and, you know, it just, it's just timing everything ran out. So um, but everybody said yes. So I kind of written all the songs and then piecemealed everything off to everybody. And uh, they were just awesome to contribute their time and their creativity. I'm fa- I'm a fan of all these guys in right. different ways. So it's just so cool to get to, you know, to me, that was a, you know, the success of the record really was that. I mean, regard- I mean, it's nice that it's being received really well now. And who knows what that means and where it goes from here is great. But to me, to get to re- make a record with all these guys is just as good as it gets. It really does. So now there's a song on there called Alone in the World, which is absolutely a bona fide single. I mean, that should be on radio across America, across Europe, across Australia, all, just all over the place. Uh, and of course, you've got Jeff Scott Soto uh, singing on that. Um, talk to me about about having Jeff and, and the importance of how you chose who got to sing what. Um, I mean, strangely, most of these guys were like, I mean, Devin wanted to play guitar, you know, I, I, and, and he wanted, he's... I, obviously, he's known just as a creative genius overall. But so um, the only two singers really that guested on the record were Jeff, who uh, was phenomenally, you know, no one needs to introduce how great that guy is. And um, uh, Benji Webb from Skindred um, were really the two vocal performances on it. But I've known, Jeff gave me my first professional job in music. So, like, I've known Jeff since I was 18 years old. Right. And, uh, and obviously, we've done a bunch of these little acoustic shows together, just as, like, really you know, buds going to hang out and like, you know, have an excuse for a weekend to go, go nuts and have fun. Um, so to get a chance to have him on the record and, you know, I had guessed it on one of his earlier records a few years back. And, um, yeah, like I said, you know, I don't want to get all mushy cause that's not rock and roll, but it, it, you get to a point in your career where you get to hang with your buds. It's a good day. You know what I mean? You just get to make music and be creative. And, um, yeah, so I'm super, super just uh, thankful that it all kind of came together like that. And that goes for everybody. I mean, I've been such a massive fan of Devin or David Ellison or, you know, it's like it's just such a great thing to be able to have them participate in a record and be collaborative. It's just super cool. It is super cool. Now, 
Are you still down in Florida? Is that is that where you make your residence? No, I live in North Carolina. Oh, okay, because I was I was just curious about how it's going down there because uh, with the whole COVID situation, they're still playing in Florida. But um, yeah. talk to me a little bit about what this situation has meant for you. Can you tour this album? Do do you therefore come up with some kind of streaming concept for it? How do you get it out to the people other than interviews? You know, I've been so uh, thrilled so far because, I mean, it, it got picked up by a whole bunch of new people. Like uh, there's been some Spotify playlists and title playlists that have been like these problems. So the funny thing is the majority, other than my core group of people that know what I do, the majority of people are have no idea about my past or Saigon Kick or anything with that. So it's been kind of like this neat uh, influx of brand new people. Like, so if you said Saigon kick to half the people that are into this new record, they'd be like, what, you know, you know, but I, what is this? But I'm old. I'm older. I need to go with, I need to go down the Saigon kick road. Oh, yeah, yeah. For sure. For I sure. have I to. Mean, it's what I do. There's absolutely, there's no problem in any of that, but, uh, it's just, it's really neat. Cause it's kind of straddling two worlds, you know? Well, okay. Talk to me about that. Cause that is a unique sort of position to be in because you look at some bands and and i'll take bon jovi as an, as an example they will do something new and fans will go oh it's not slippery when wet retire john right. and yet you're in a position where you can do something new and you can try something uh, different uh talk to me about that and and how do you balance pleasing old fans but making new fans and not you know it's it's, it's a very difficult kind of calculation I think any fan of Saigon Kick that was aware of what we did as a band and then has kind of followed me at all has would be more disappointed if I made something uh, that seemed contrived to try to have a comeback record or try to have hits. Um, they would almost crucify me for that. So the more and that's a really fortunate place to be. And also Saigon Kick, you know, is not Bon Jovi. You know, it, we had a hit and some people are aware of us. We're an obscure trivia mention when someone's talking about the, you know, it's, it's not like, oh, yeah, you know, Bon Jovi and Motley Crue and Saigon Kick. It's like, so in hindsight, that made me, you know, made my career not big enough where there's these expectations of, you know, an arena full of people who just want to hear the hits. Although, I mean, I'm still respectful of that. And, and, and on a smaller level, you know, when we do these venues, people want to hear some Saigon Kick stuff. And and that's awesome. And, you know, any artist I'm a fan of that's been fortunate enough to be around for a long time, you know, like, you know, if, if I went to see Jane's Addiction, I mean, I'm open to hearing some new stuff. But if they don't play Mountain Song and some of those things, I'm going to be like, you know, so it's a balance. It is. And uh, in fact, I was I was posting about Saigon Kick the other day because the anniversary of Love is on the Way hitting Billboard charts came up not too long ago. So there you go. Um, in terms of this band, you know, you have Owl Stretching. How is this different from Owl Stretching? Are, are these two completely different, I'll call it brands for the lack of a better word? Uh, or, or musically, is it just the same thing under a different name? What are the two differences? After running the label for a while, I decided I was just going to, I wanted to just selfishly create this like writing experiment. So my goal was to take, write something, produce it, mix it and release it to Bandcamp within 24 hours. Cause I just wanted to focus on writing. Like if you're a journalist or you're a creative writer, whatever you're writing, the best way to get better at that is to write a lot. Um, and that was my theory. To do so, it, right? Do it. Yeah. So I just named it this obscure thing under no commercial aspirations or even selling things whatsoever called owl stretching and released about 150 songs in a 
two years or whatever it was. And it grew its little cult following and, you know, started to really, you know, people started getting into it. And then the people around me were like, you know, it's not like Jason Beeler is a household name. So you're making it even more difficult for anybody who remotely listened to Saigon Kick to find you or, you know, to know what you're doing. So Alistrishing really is uh, the beginning or the, the, you know, the embryo that this record has turned into. Uh, it's just really writing. So it's just more of what I always have done. Um, so I, I just, you know, through through pressure of people saying, if you're going to do something, at least for the people that are fans of Saigon Kick who might look for something you're doing, make it so people can be aware. I mean, that was a whole real. So thing. where do we go from here with this? Is this the first of many? Is this one and done and then on to the next project? How do you how do you sort of move this forward? I. Uh, this is the first of, of what you know, will be many. I mean, okay. um, you know, my goal is to tour it, like which was, you know, we talked about it a little bit ago, you know, at some point when it's safe for everybody and that actually becomes a viable possibility. So hopefully, you know, if all goes well, you know, late summer, fall, we can start to do something. Um, we're talking about doing a massive live stream event, um, maybe sometime in March, February, March, we're talking about that. I've been kind of against the whole because uh, to, to me, I mean, live is really about an exchange of energy between a crowd and the performer, not me and an iPhone. You know, it's it's kind of different. And that's a whole art into it of, of itself to be able to perform to just a camera and still have that thing going on. I, I respond. I respond to what the crowd's doing. So if people yes. are, you know, it, it changes everything. So um, I've been kind of a little hesitant on to do that. But uh, yeah, I want to still... You know, and, and I just, let me let me stop you there for a second. And as a fan, I respond to what the band's doing. I mean, if you're there and you're staring at your shoes, I'm I'm disinterested and I leave. If you've got stuff blowing up, I'm all good to go. But you don't get that on the computer. It, you just right. you just don't. And it's it. I don't even know how to describe it, but it's, I guess it's that energy. You need that energy. You need that vibe. It's, you need the smells. It's, it's, you it's know, fifty percent of what makes a show is the crowd. You yes. Know, when, when you're in a crowd of people that are going nuts for bands you love, it feeds the whole thing. It just becomes a it's you know, it's it's that extra element that makes live music great. Yeah. And I'll, and, I'll, and and I'll even give you examples. I have been to I have been invited to shows that I'm not necessarily a fan of the band. I went to see Keith Urban uh, not too long ago, and I'm not a Keith Urban fan. And the crowd was so completely insane that by the end of it, I was completely into it. And you right. can't get that on a stream. You just, you know. So, all right. So now you did say you want to do this stream. When would that come out? And, and would you get these guys to guests? Would how, how does that work? Yeah, we're looking at the logistics of how to pull it all off. So, I mean, February, March, somewhere in that period, we'll, we'll try if it's safe. My first concern is for obviously anybody uh, to participate that we do it as safely as possible. Um, and what that entails, we're just starting to figure out. Um, but, you know, so that's one of the things we're talking about. But, um, yeah, I mean, you know, as far as the creative portion of it, I, just, I, I, you know, part of me feels like I have another six months before touring anyway. So I might, you know, start another record right now. Uh, I just and I respect so many musicians that, you know, they're in 150 projects. And every time I open up Facebook or social media, it's it's another whole record that somehow has been completed in the last 15 minutes. Are you talking um, about Jeff Scott Soto? I would never. <laughs> I think it's easier to tell you. Or Ronnie Romero. Happen. No, I'm yeah. kidding. Which is great. Hey, man, these guys are hustling and they're making music and that's the way to do it. For me, yes. um, I, I've not ever done that. I've never really been a side person um, or done things like that. So 
What's neat is I kind of get to do that by having everybody involved in my little playground and they can come in and visit and I can replace, you know, the, the, the broken slide or put a new water theme in. I can just kind of play with all these amazing musicians and uh, continue to move forward, I think, with some kind of sense of, uh, I think things always wind up having this, you know, for better or worse, I've listened to so much music over my life from Miles Davis to Barry Manilow to Meshuggah to, I just love music. It kind of gets into my brain and just comes out of a blender sounding somewhat like what I do. So either you like that or you don't, but it always kind of has that sound. So I get to pull these different elements in. And even, I mean, the thing I'm most proud of is you look at a guy like Clay Cook, uh, who's in the Zach Brown band. So having a guest is really not that interesting. I mean, everybody's got guests on their record now. So that, that's not like in and of itself going to save the day. But the fact that I made a record where, you know, Clay Cook is on a record from the Zach Brown band with Devin Townsend and Bumblefoot, that makes me excited because that says a lot about the kind of warped world of music that's involved in this. And, and seeing these guys like you were talking about with Keith Urban, you know, they're, they're such great musicians and they're all aware of what each other does. Even this bass player who plays on Apology, his name's Kevin Scott. And he played with like John McLaughlin on the last John McLaughlin tour. And he plays with Wayne Krantz, uh, these jazz guys and Jimmy Herring and all these amazing like underground, like brilliant. So like this the weird thing that they all get to work together and everybody's such a fan of what everybody else does even though you wouldn't necessarily assume they would be, you know what I mean? It's like, it's just really kind of a fun environment. Yeah, it really is. And, and again, back to these different shows, uh, Opeth, I've, I, same thing. Crowd went crazy. Uh, Culture club crowd. Went, and you just, you get, you get drawn in. Um, where did you, you talked about a love for music. Where does that come from? I mean, I, I grew up in a village of 500 people back in the seventies and eighties. There was no cable TV. So I had albums, right? That was it. I had albums and my brother would borrow albums from friends and all of a sudden be like, oh, I have ABBA. No, I got Kiss. Oh, I've got Aerosmith. And that's where it came from. Where does yours come from? Probably pretty similar. I mean, I remember my earliest memories are my parents had some eight tracks. So they had like the Beatles and and the Fifth Dimension and um, all these different things. And I remember listening in the car to AM, like a lot of the Motown stuff that would be on. So the Supremes and things like that. And then, you know, when I was pretty young, I would guess eight or nine when kiss like the cool kid in the neighborhood had a kiss record and i was just blown away by that whole thing and then went and saw like literally seen barry manilow a few times live and i saw the mills brothers and i would see um you know jerry lewis and i would go see duran duran and i would go see ingve and i'd see Loverboy, and i'd see you know whatever was coming through i've just to me there's just you know it's not my quote but it's there's literally two types of music there's good and the other kind yeah, I, I, I'm with you. I, I have two kinds of myself, the ones my ears like and the ones my ears don't like. And <laughs> that, that, know, that's it. I just like it. You, I mean, you've been around music long enough to know that you can tell when someone's great, even if it's not yes. your particular style or you, like you said, with Keith no, Urban, but you know what? if it's you, not your thing, you, you know when it's real and it's yes. great, you can respect that and enjoy it. Yeah, I, I fully agree. And I'll tell you why. Uh, when you look at a Madonna or you look at a U2 or you look at these bands that are outside of what I listen to, you go... I understand why they're at the top of the game because, you know, and, and when you go to a bar band and, you know, an undiscovered band, you go, ugh, going through the motions, they're complaining about their rut, they're never going to make it. And then you see these other ones focused, dedicated, on point, set, and you go, they've got something. And I've seen you know, a like, lot of those, like, they got yeah. something, become something. Like, like it or not, I mean, Madonna doesn't happen by accident. No, it doesn't. You don't have a 30-year career like you two. 
No. Because, you know, but it, it, these are truly great at what they do. And, and it's up to you whether you're going to take the time to figure out why. Right. But there's something amazing going on. And and I think every musician, and I think that's better now than it was, because I remember when we, we were probably of a similar age, when we were kids, you know, you sat at the punk table or you sat at the metal table and you didn't talk to anybody else. And that was your world. And it was very, very isolated. And now the cool thing I think about, you know, the newer generation of kids listening to music is like they're listening to like Rihanna, into ACDC, into Post Malone, into Skrillex, into the new Metallica track, to Gojira. They just want to hear good tunes. So they don't really care about a lot of the things that, you know, in the 80s there you had to have a singer with abs and blonde hair and to even get in the game. You know, yeah. I, I don't think my son knows that ACDC is almost 70 years old. Like no. they just write rock tunes. He yeah. didn't care. And, and you're right, by the way. Uh, I met Post Malone at this festival called Oceaga years ago. I was I brought my daughter and I was hanging around backstage and I talked to the guy. And I had no idea who he was. And I tell my daughter after I went, I went, I saw this guy post something. And she was like, oh, my God. And I have to say, his style of music is not necessarily what I listen to. But he's really fucking good at what he does. My fucking Lord. And yeah, yeah. that same festival, Post played, and then another one played, um, I keep messing up her name, Dia Lupa or Dia, Lu Dia Lupa or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My God, she was great. That that show was just terrific. And yeah, there's so many great records out there, man. Even like a, the Lizzo, I love the Lizzo record. I mean, I thought it was just such a great pop record. You know, To me, I, I just want to see Badassery. That's all I want to see. I, so, I mean, I don't care whether you're playing jazz or country uh -huh. or metal. I just want to go, man, that's a badass. Right. Just, so like, so talk to me quickly about that because you you're, you talk Duran Duran, you talk Barry Manilow and all these other bands that you've seen. How does that find its way into what you do? Is it just their professional ethics? Is it, you know, how they how they put on, you know, their professionalism? Is it their sounds? Do, do you have those beats? That, how do you sort of incorporate that or you just, do your own thing. In my, I think it's, you know, it's just in my DNA over years of responding to music like that. Um, even with Saigon Kick, for better or worse, we had really insanely progressive heavy tracks and we had ballads and we had Beatlesque stuff and we had melody stuff. We had alternative stuff. And that was always my appeal to music. I never wanted to the say I look at music like I look at movies like I'm all for watching a horror movie. I don't want to watch 12 horror movies. I'll, I'll fucking kill myself. Like, you know, I'm all for like a comedy and Python and, you know, a, a, a mystery and a, you know, a romantic comedy and then a horror movie. Like, and that's the way I look at music. I always want to be evolving and changing and hearing different things. And, um, you know, I would never, people tend to sometimes look, I just want to see this over and over and over. And, you know, if, if you're just into one thing, I remember going to Ozfest, you know, a few years back and I was just shocked that, other than a couple of moments, it just sounded like, you know, and it was like yeah, 12 for, hours <laughs> of one band. Yeah. And then Ozzy would come on and you'd be like, oh, okay, great. You know, um, and there's nothing wrong with each of those bands individually. But to me, like, I want to see a band do that, the best band do that. And then I want to see some, I just I just need to constantly be. You need you know, peaks and I valleys. Have. I mean, yes. Yeah. And and I don't want to start uh, bad-mouthing festivals, but I've seen way too many festivals. And unfortunately, Canada and the States, when they do a festival, they it's one ingredient repeated 50 times. And you're like, 
Well, I mean, at least when you go to Europe, they, they try to do some weird stuff like, you know, Wacken will have Foreigner. You'll be like, what? I, what? I just saw D- Demo Borg here. What, foreigner? Right. <laughs> but to me, that's like... But that's I cool. Want, but that's we don't do best. that here. In North America, we don't do that. It's it's Here's one ingredient fifth served to you 50 times. And you're like, I don't need 50 slices of pizza, boys. Come on, give me something. Right. But uh, yeah, anyway. Man, I, I couldn't agree with you more. <sighs> I'm telling you. Uh, let me just quickly get into Saigon Kick. I mean, the band comes out sort of at the end of the wave, at the end of that whole sort of sunset strip, melodic rock whole thing, you do well. Uh, the Lizard makes it up onto the charts, and, and, and which is actually remarkable for the, for the time that it made it onto the charts. Talk to me about what you were feeling as a band. Did, did, you, did you sense the wave of music changing and said, oh shit, we need to sort of reinvent ourselves? Or you just went, no, we're that good at doing what we do. Let's just full on. How did you sort of... Face that. I, I don't know that it was uh, any belief that we were that good as much as the, I mean, I don't know. how. I mean, since I wrote the vast majority of the stuff, I don't know how to think about music differently. So, you know, I, I'm a fan of bands that were great at what they did that kind of had a more narrow uh, field of vision. But um, and we, look, when we started, we toured with the Ramones. We toured with Cheap Trick. We toured with Faith No More. We played with Soundgarden. We played with Ozzy on the first record. I think our first record was no more diverse really then the second record ultimately um we're going to do the second record music starts to change um we go to mexico to shoot a video for the song hostile youth with the guy who shot the jane's addiction uh documentary gift and i get a call that uh radio station of florida is now playing this ballad and it's exploding and it's all of a sudden selling you know in this one market it's number one in phones and it's selling ten thousand records a week or whatever it was and it was a hit. Um, it was never like the intention. It was never written to, it's, you know, we had a ballad on the first record that wasn't a hit. Um, but that instantly, we were never really accepted by the hair metal bands, for lack of a better word. Uh, I know people are really sensitive about that. I, I'm not. I, I Listen, it's an adjective. And as soon as you say it, we know exactly what you're talking about. So I don't see what the problem is. There's great, I think there's great hair metal bands. So I don't mean it as an insult in any way. But, it, it's, it's not an insult. <laughs> so you have those bands that were kind of never really accepting of us. Um, we were never really part of that. And then because of the palette, all the grunge bands hated us. We were untouchable at that time. So, you know, we kind of managed to float right between the two tectonic shifts in music. Um, but I think you could say the same thing of Extreme. You could say the same thing of uh, King's X kind of landed right. You know, n- none of us were really considered a grunge band by any stretch. And most people didn't think of us as part of that late 80s. I mean, our first record came out in 91. So we weren't really part of that 80s thing. So though it had I mean, it, it had some of the elements. I mean, even even a band like Firehouse fell in the cracks because they came out after the 80s, but they certainly weren't grunge. And it was just like, where, where do we go? Where do we talk? Talk to me just real quick about the songwriting, because you did write most of the stuff for Saigon Kick. You did write uh, Love is on the Way. Um did your songwriting mature over the years? Did it change? Did, did you forcibly change it where you go, no, I can't write that kind of melodic stuff. I need to go. Um, how has your songwriting evolved, if, if I can ask? I am, and it's probably a superpower at this point. Like, I am just oblivious and impervious to scorn. So <laughs> I just do what I do. And I write the music I write. and um, And I think having a little perspective now at this point in my career, you know, 
I love my reward is I get to make music and I get to be creative. And if you get to be around long enough, you're going to have years where you are the shit and everybody loves you and thinks you're a genius. Shortly followed thereafter by you're a piece of shit and someone should kill you. you oh, see, I did it in reverse. I, I started off there and I'm waiting for the uh, for the accolades. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so but and then hopefully if you just stay true to what you do, it all comes back around even on a much larger scale. You look at Bon Jovi's ebb and flow. They were like the biggest thing in the world. Then all of a sudden it was kind of an untouchable thing. And then all of a sudden, again, they're the biggest thing. In, you know, they're a great rock band. And Def Leppard went through it and Aerosmith went through it. Scorpions. Um, the Bee Gees just released this brilliant documentary. A friend, you know, Steve Gibb plays with me a lot. Um, so, you know, you see the Bee Gees. I mean, you couldn't have been bigger. And then you couldn't have had the tide turn against you. And now everybody's sitting back like, wait a minute, that's a brilliant, I mean, they've written 40 like life-changing hits, you know? You can't, you know, you can't, so I think to, you know, to get too happy when things are going amazing is always dangerous in the music business. And, and to take it to the point where you're like, I can't do this anymore, or I need to totally change. Because once you start chasing, you're done. Like if, if I had seen music changing and then all of a sudden put on like flannel and combat boots and, you know, started going, you know, you know, doing that thing. I mean, I'd have been killed anyway. It would have never like been real and it wouldn't have worked. And uh, you, you just said that and I started picturing Brett Michaels in combat boots. And <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and look, I don't fault anybody for trying because, you know, you, you, you get a taste of some success. Right. And um, and it's it's addictive. It's it's nice, you know. The, the the record company's picking you up at limos from the airport, and you know, it's just it's a good feeling, you know. And then all of a sudden, it's gone overnight. Like the record company's not sending a car for you anymore, and you know, it, and everything starts to change. It's really hard to deal with if that is where you're driving all your pleasure from. You know what I mean? Yeah. Let me ask you this: in terms of writing, because you do write a lot, uh, the owl. Um, not the owl thing, but the band had, like yeah, you yeah. said, 150 songs. Did you write for other artists? Is that something that interests you to write the next Katy Perry song or to write the next Duran Duran song or to write the next Metallica song? Are you into sharing that and, and being a songwriter, a Desmond child? I mean, I love writing music and I love working with talented people. I fear, and maybe it's just a self fear, you know, I think what I do tends to be fairly specific. Like, it, like, I don't even think of myself as a singer. I think I have a sound. Like, and, and but there's some of my favorite artists have sounds. And that, like, Jeff, to me, is a singer of just, like, one of the greatest singers. I wish, literally, when we're on stage together and he starts singing, I feel like I'm about to get kicked off American Idol. Like, I feel like it's like, yeah, you have a nice personality, but we're going to go with Jeff. We're going to go with Jeff. So, you need, you know. Um, but I know I have a sound to what I do. And uh, whether that can be beneficial uh, to another artist or that collaboration could happen. I mean, I love pop music. I love hooks. I love melodies. Um, I'd love to, you know, it's not something I wouldn't do. I just don't know that people go like, that's a sound that would work with me is Katy Perry. I don't right. know that she's going back through the Saigon kick catalog looking for her, <laughs> new, her next. You never know. You never her know. Her next banger. And, and you did mention that you have a sound. Have you used that sound in anything off screen, have you done any voiceovers? Have you? Do you want to be one of those guys who voices cartoons and, and anything like that? I mean, you look at Brad Gillis; he does a lot. I think it's Fox Sports music, he, and people don't know that. And you go, "Oh, Brad Gillis is doing all." A ton of my friends have had massive. I mean, Chris McLernan, who was in Saigon Kick for mm -hmm. years, mm -hmm. he's a bass player. Yeah, he does a ton. Of, he's done a ton of stuff for The Office, and he's doing a ton of voice work uh, and things like that. Robert um, Mason of Warrant does a ton. I mean, it's, it's yeah. So I mean, I haven't. I mean, I just, you know, I really, I, I guess 
I started producing at the kind of towards the tail end of the Saigon kick stuff. I started a label with my brother and was producing bands like Nonpoint and Skindred. And uh, you know, we had a great run of you know, bands like Carnival were on the label and uh, from Australia and Sixth. And so I, I spent like 10 years kind of in that world of, uh, you know, being around those types of things. Um, and then as, you know, as time went on here, I just wanted to get back to being, I realized that, you know, as an artist that was on a major label, uh, in a band, then I was working at a label, running a label, working with artists, producing artists, dealing with managers and all that stuff. I realized I hate everybody. I hate all <laughs> bands, all artists. All you and people. me both. No. Uh, you know, talk, I'm better off being by myself. Uh, I think so. Uh, talk to me about that creative process. Because when you're writing your own songs and you're doing your own things, like this album here, and then you get a non-point and, and you're telling them how to do something or you're maybe pointing out, maybe you should try... Is it the same rush for you creativ creati creatively? <laughs> it's a, yeah, yeah. It's a I mean, big word. Around, I mean, to me, I, I first found that band. Uh, I was doing a show with a, actually, a, I was in a band called Super Transatlantic with Pat Badger. And we were playing a radio festival. And we were sitting behind the stage. And the stage just started to rumble. And I heard like a roar. And I went up and it was nonpoint. And they were killing it in front of like a thousand people as a local band. Um, they had just this energy that I was like, you know, so that's always like whenever I find anything like that, I just naturally want to be a part of it in some capacity. I'll, I'll lift amps, uh, whatever I got to do. I just, you know, I want to be a part of something like that um, and, and see that. So, um, yeah, to help participate or help to try to say to them, look, look, I've just spent the last chunk of my life playing every venue you're about to play and going to every radio station you're about to go to. And here's the mistakes, you know, I made. And, you know, here's what here's here's what you probably should try to avoid doing and and uh, maybe try to help them just structurally. You know, I think it's a, for that kind of band. I don't think it's about getting in there and changing it. You know what I mean? Because there's an unbridled just thing about what they're doing. So if you get in there and try to Bob Rocket and make it like this per, or or Mutt Lang it. Mutt Lang it. Yeah. It's not the right uh, production for them. So I was trying to you know, just, just guide them a bit. But anyway, yeah, being around that kind of stuff and being involved in any capacity to me is like, that's where I get my buzz in the music business. I mean, that's where it's about. Yeah. You're, you're funny. It's funny that you mentioned Mutt Lang because I've, I've always said that, you know, Def Leppard didn't make an album with Mutt Lang. Mutt Lang made an album with Def Leppard. You know, it's, it's a Mutt Lang record with Def Leppard playing or and it's he's brilliant. And he's so brilliant. And Bob, all these guys are and brilliant. Bob Ezrin. Bob Ezrin does the same thing. He, Bob Ezrin does Bob Ezrin solo albums featuring Kiss Featuring Alice Cooper, which you can't argue with the results. Can't argue. Well, except maybe the elder. Yeah, well. we, we can maybe discuss <laughs> that. Uh, that, that, that <laughs> that's a different result. Uh, so there you go. And in terms of uh, just real quick, Phil Verone, of course, uh, joined uh, Skid Row and ran off with them for a bit and then, you know, did some other stuff. What's it like? Just a silly question of the day. Just what's it like being in a band with Phil Verone? High energy, dude. I, I love yeah, Phil, well, by the way. When yeah, when I was in Saigon Kick, you know, the funny thing is, uh, you know, at most we would drink a beer or two. I mean, we weren't a drug band or a party band or like things hadn't come off the rails with us. And then we kind of split apart, um, you know, rather uh, unceremoniously. So I didn't really see Phil's uh, other chunk of life. I wasn't really involved in any of that, you know, other than people telling me this or the other thing. I think he's a super talented guy. I mean, I think he's, you know, he's got a lot of, you know, he's a great drummer. And, uh, you know, I got nothing like, you know, horrible to say. I didn't, you know, uh, 
we just didn't see eye to eye musically, I think, as things went on. I mean, it was more probably a struggle between me and Matt even than it was with Phil. I mean, Phil, he's a great drummer, and that's proven by him going on, and a lot of people want to still you know make music with him. He absolutely is a, a great drummer. In, in terms of Saigon Kick, what's next for the band? Is it on permanent hiatus? Is it on we're back in 2021? Where do we go with that? Because it's it's important. I mean, you have a brand. Yeah. Brand is important. I uh, I answer it like this. We put that little reunion, a few reunion shows together, whether it was three or four years ago, we decided to go to New York, L.A., you know, whatever we could do. Uh, and they were really successful. We didn't kill each other. But I equate it to, um, you know, you have an ex-girlfriend that you haven't seen in 10 years. And you go to dinner. And the first night you're like, my God, she's beautiful and she's witty. And all these things I remembered were so attractive. But then the second day comes around and you're like, ah, I know why we broke up. I know. There she is. That's the girl. I so and I'm sure they can say the same thing about me. I mean, uh, so it's, it's just I'm not interested in that process. I'm not saying never because I'm just who knows what the world brings. But for me, we did it. We reunited to try some stuff. Um, I'm fortunate enough that things are, you know, happening in a nice way for me right now. Um, and that's where my head's focused. I wish them well if they wanted to do it. I mean, more power to them. Uh, um, and I get it as a fan because, you know, like even saying something like Skid Row, like I'm friends with Scotty, friends with Sebastian. I mean, I met, we've met, we're social, I should say. And, uh, you know, but as a fan, I'm like, just, I, that's what I want to see is that that band with that lineup. As a human being, I totally get it. Like as a band, I, I mean, life's too short, you know, and, and just to do something for the entertainment of other people, what they want. It's like someone saying literally something, you know, that girlfriend you have that you hate. I really liked her. You should go out with her again. You, but what about my life and me being happy with the girl? You know, no, no, no. That doesn't matter. You but, should definitely date her. But but the band never officially disbanded at the end of the reunion. You never said we quit. It, it just sort of faded away. Yeah, I mean, it, which it, is why the question sort of is sort of open. Yeah, yeah, it's a valid question. I totally. Yeah, I just for me, the answer is no. I mean, I have no desire to do it, um, and I just don't find it creatively stimulating. And 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 I'm sure they could say the same for me and their whole thing. But yeah, it's just fine. Me, like, it, it, I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm, it's I'm the way totally it is. Lucky. Yeah, I'm I'm lucky enough at this point to you know have this happening for me in some small wonderful way. And uh, that's where my head's at. I'm, ha- I'm having a wonderful time and it doesn't get lost on me how lucky. I mean, t- if you would have told me at this point in my career, a whole new audience would be discovering me and getting written up in all these different prog magazines and all, like things I would just never in a million years would have thought. I'd be like, it's so amazing. And uh, it, it seems like I did what I wanted to do musically and stayed true to that. And the tide, like we talked about, comes and goes. At the moment, it appears to be going my way a little bit. And I'm going to ride it for all it's worth and enjoy it and be creative with people that I love and respect. And uh, yeah, it's all good. It's all it's 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 fantastic. And I'll finish on this uh, and I'll just bring it back to love is on the way, uh, mostly because I'd had that uh, billboard anniversary not too long ago. Um, When that song hits, do you go back as a songwriter and say, "Ooh, what was the secret sauce? And let me try to write another few like this. Or it, does it get to the point where you get interviewers like me that go, oh, I love it. And you just go, oh, fuck, not that fucking song again. Just leave me alone. Like, how does that, how do you react to that song as a songwriter and also as the artist when you have a success with it? It's literally written, and I think I even posted the demo somewhere. I wrote that song in five minutes on an acoustic guitar with a head cold. Right. Um, 
We hear that, mm-hmm. by the way, a lot from big songs. I mean, you hear the Beatles go, oh, I wrote that on a napkin on a, in a taxi. And you're like, what? The lyrics pretty <laughs> much all, the lyrics all came to me in one chunk. Uh, you know, and so it is always a good thing, I think, when you create anything and it touches people for whatever that reason is. You mm-hmm. can't be so egotistical that you're like, I only want cool, you know, hipster people to, you know, right. I want to, I, I want only want ambient hemp farmers in, in, in the Nordic <laughs> region to be going, that dude's cool. It's a wonderful thing to have a record that touches that many people. And I'm always happy to hear people like it um, or, you know, whatever it meant right. to them. And um, it wasn't a purposeful thing any more than anything I've ever done is. Right. I mean, but, but did you try to repeat it after? Did, did you, tr- did you say, Ooh, okay. I don't no? think so. I mean, I, we, we right. had other ballads on the next record that actually became massive in Indonesia and a right. lot of throughout Asia, a song called I Love You, but it had nothing to do with really Love Is On The Way. Um, Anymore. I mean, you're looking at my entire career is literally a one, just an accident, one happy accident after I'm in a laboratory pouring a bunch of stuff together and going, oh, I didn't blow myself up today. It's a good day. And then, you know, eventually, hopefully something great comes out and um, and people respond to it. But, yeah, there's no like, you know, if I could only it was these chord structures with this thing. If I do that again, people because it never works. I mean, you're, it doesn't. You're not, you, you can vary more than words all you want. It's never going to happen like that again. I mean, it just won't. Even though it's, you know, the great thing about music, it, you know, and, and I think the longer I've been doing it is like you realize like how when you're you start to learn how to play guitar, you're like, okay, you know, you learn ACDC or this song because they're easy or the Rolling Stones because they're easy. And then I think my dog's trying to dig a hole through the floor. There. That's okay. Mine's barking downstairs. So it's all good. Uh, so you try to, you know, you learn those things and then you get better and you get in a rush and you get in all these kind of really hard things. And then as you get older, older, you're like, Oh my God, like nobody sounds like the Rolling Stones. Nobody sounds like, you know, like ACDC. Like, I don't care if it's two chords or not. There's something magical that happens. And I think that's true of it. You know, any hit song, it's like, yes, it might, you know, the Beatles songs, everyone's like, oh, gee, yeah, you go ahead and write it. Go ahead and write Let It Be. And let's see yeah, how that turns well, out. Yeah, you know? try, try yesterday. No, it's just, it's just funny because yeah. I had this conversation with Doug Feger of the Knack years ago. And he said, Mitch, he goes, my Sharona. You know, is a golden albatross. It it bought me this house. It bought me this pool. Blah blah blah. But every time I went to the record company after, they would listen to it and go, "Yeah, we don't hear another My Sharona. Could you go try again?" And it became this really frustrating thing that I was like, oh, I wish I hadn't written this." So, you know, it's, it's funny. Well, Jason Flom was our you know an A and R guy. Uh, oh, I know Jason. So yeah, Jason and me are friends till this day. But back in the day, I remember him going like, "You know, I don't know what the fuck Saigon Kick is doing." Just do it. I don't. I don't understand what you guys do. Like I, I'm not in a position here to say do more or less of this. You know, it just do what you do. And he let me produce the second record. You know, that was his call. Um, you know, which wouldn't have happened maybe with other people. That might have just because he was like, I don't know what the hell we're gonna do. But it happened, and it, and he and he allowed that to happen. So, um, yeah. I mean, they were never really. Pro- I mean, I'm look. At the end of the day, they're a record company. They want to make money, which means selling records. When you don't sell records, slowly but surely. It's coming to an end. Or you can stream them and then not pay the artist for sales. That's even better. Yeah, even better. <laughs> even better. Yeah. If I had only thought of that. I know. Uh, Jason Beeler and the Baron von Bielski Orchestra, Songs for the Apocalypse, which we're, I think we're living through right now, actually, uh, out January 22nd, uh, 2021. And as we say in Montreal, merci beaucoup. That was an absolute pleasure. 
Absolute well, pleasure. Thank you so much. Seriously, thank you so much for taking the time. I, I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime. And uh, yeah, let's let, let's let's try to get this up to Montreal somehow. I don't know when and how, but I am down. I am but, into it. Yeah, we got we got Todd, we got Dave, we got Devin, ba- Pat Badger, I mean Butch Walker, and uh, Jason Flom. There's there's a guy I'd love to interview someday. That would be. I'd love to figure out how he figured out who to pick. You know, how did he go? Skid Row, so, yes. Well, it's so wonderful having a conversation with him because I literally, like, he'll never admit it. I've never seen anybody with a better picking average than him over the course of his years. I mean, anybody. But he never, like, like he'll, as soon as you say, like, oh, my God, you signed Kid Rock, he's like, yeah, but I passed on Alanis Morissette. I, you know, that, that, that I, frustration, yeah. You know, I passed on Metallica. I passed on Pearl Jam. You know, and you're like, oh, yeah, but it, but you did sign Enya and, and the court, and you did sign Stone Temple Pilots. And all, you just go down this road of people that he signed, and it's like, you know, he's 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 just so great because he'll literally, like, I remember people, like, coming by the office, cleaning the office at 8 when I'd be hanging with him, and he'd be like, listen to this. And the guy would go like, nah. And i just watch him with the career go in the toilet. Like, he'd just be like, eh. Or if someone walked by, it literally walked by his office and goes, what the hell is that? That's awesome. He'd be like, sign it. And it's Matchbox Twenty or something. You know, it's like just unbelievable the innate, you yeah, know, but, ability. Even a Greta Van Fleet. I mean, that's him too. I mean, it's like you look uh, at the, it's just unbelievable. Yeah, and but but I'm telling you, you can tell you, when you go to a, to the, those club shows, you just know who's at that next level. You just feel it by everything: their attitude, their vibe, the the way they present the show. You know, the guys that are in clubs showing up in. Well, I mean, I show up in running shoes and and and, and jeans, but they're just they, they look ugh, and they they don't and they they start complaining about oh my fries are cold. It's like no, you fucking you you play, you get paid, you go home, and you stay on the fucking. Well, that's what always cracks me talking to bands today, and I don't want to drag this on, but it just you talk to a band and they're like the local scene sucks. My response is always no, you suck. There is no responsibility for fans to just come out to see every local band. People have. All kinds of things they can do. You need to give them a reason to come support local music. And it's got to be great. No one cares. You know, you're competing with, you know, Netflix and Pornhub and all these things that people can be doing. And you're expecting them to come out to a club and stand and watch you. It's not because they just want to stand around supporting anything. You know, the band's got to be great. And and all the bands I've ever seen, for the most part, you know, even going back to Marilyn Manson, who came up from our same scene, we're drawing all this. Your Saigon Kick, before we got signed, we were drawing 1,500 people as an unsigned band with no demo tape. Yeah. Twisted and, Sister and was the, doing the same. They were they were playing 3,000 people with unsigned. And Yeah, they built the scene. Yes. And, yeah, the, the local scene does You're right. You're absolutely right. The local scene doesn't suck. You suck because, uh, you know, in Montreal we had Arcade Fire. and oh. And they were selling out places. The local scene didn't suck for them. Why? Because they were giving people a show. They were giving people a reason to show up. People and, want to come out and see that. And if that's what they're, you know, that's that, that's how it, that's how it's always worked in my mind. I mean, I'm open to being, you know, I, I could be wrong, but to a person, every anytime you see more than a few hundred people showing up, something's going on. And and it, it goes back to what I was saying is that you can tell right from the beginning from the attitude. If the attitude's not there, you know. Kiss always thought they'd make it. Metallica always thought they'd make it. Madonna always thought she'd make it. Not, oh, well, nobody likes me. Uh, the scenes, oh, fuck off. Oh, there you go. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I, I, there you go. Uh, on that, uh, let's once again, uh, Jason Beeler and the Baron Von Bielski Orchestra, Songs for the Apocalypse, 
January 22nd, 2021 on, I believe, Frontiers. Yes, of course, the one and only yes, Frontiers. Uh, Serafino and Mario and all those great people. Al- Al- Alessandro Del Vecchio, all those great people over there. Yep. They've been very, they've been very, very good to me. Yes, and, and good to me over the years. I, plenty of interviews booked and all that kind of good stuff. So there you go. Merci, monsieur. Thank you. Thank you very much, my friend. Take care. Cheers.